You're listening to the UCB Long Form Conversations podcast, in-depth conversations with performers and teachers from the best alternative comedy theater on the planet. This podcast is modeled on the improv form Laurent, so the guest of our last episode becomes the host of this episode, and today's guest will become the host of our next episode. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the comedians talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of UCB Theater or Training Center. Warning. What you're about to hear is an extremely nerdy conversation about long-form improv comedy. Welcome to the UCB Long Form Conversations podcast from Los Angeles. I'm Ana Rajo. So I was the guest on the last episode, but today I'm the host. And my guest today is Brennan Lee Mulligan. Woo! Yes. Who improv fans might know from Harold Knight in New York, from teaching at UCB LA, from college humor, from all sorts of things. So, Brennan, how you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing, Anna? I'm great. Um, so, Brennan, I I, I want to hear a little bit about your backstory because I did some research and I know that you were homeschooled. You're from New York. You were homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get into improv stuff, can you just tell me a little bit about, you know, what growing up was. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I grew up in New York, part of the time in the cities when I was very little, I was in the city. And then part of the time my dad lived uh, in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. And then my mom lived upstate about an hour and a half uh, uh, in the Hudson Valley, Catskills, which is like uh, the, the woods. Um, my mom was a comic book writer. Uh, my dad was a stand up comedian. Um, so there's been a lot of comedy in the family for a very long time. I actually saw my dad do improv when I was a little Wow, where? Kid. He was part of a group called the First Amendment. Um, and he d- did stand-up uh, professionally and uh, was a, a, a short-form improviser back in the day. This is prior to long-form moving from kind of Chicago to New York. So the improv shows he would do would be like movie review and soap opera and, you know, a lot of like, um, really fun, longer form than I would say, like whose line is it anyway is, but, but still very much in that realm of like, there's a pianist, we're playing a bunch of games. We're like, you know, uh, and that was wild. That was a very fun experience as a little kid. I remember going up on stage when I was like eight years old, I think. And I froze up and I didn't talk until the very end of the show. I just did, I didn't want to ruin any of the adults doing anything. <laughs> and the, it was, they made a whole thing out of me being a mute child. And then at the very end of the show, there was a weird pause uh, where there's like the end of this little soap opera or whatever. And there was a pause that I remember going, I'm better. And, <laughs> and everyone went, hooray. And that was the end of the show. Wow. What a button. What a button. You know, how about, you know, hey, from day one, getting that blackout. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to get the black outline every time, you know? Uh, um, so so what led to the homeschooling part? I just got the shit kicked out of me when I was in elementary school. It was a bad look. I needed to get out of there. Uh, I, I've i been a, a big old, I'm an improv nerd now, and most people listening to this will be an improv nerd, but I've also just been a general garden variety nerd <laughs> for the longest time. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I you know, I was like the kid who was like, sitting under a picnic table during recess reading animal fact cards. <laughs> uh, gotta memorize those animal facts. What's a good animal fact? Uh, oh, there is a significant difference in the style of howls between European and North American wolves. So, wow. in other words, regional accents appear to exist between uh, various species of animals that communicate uh, verbally, or not verbally, but I guess vocally. That, that's amazing. And I'm so glad you had an animal fact to support that, because that was perfect. And, and I, I would have felt terrible if I put you on the spot and you didn't have one, but you had a great one. I live to be put on the spot for animal <laughs> facts, yeah. Well, we'll see if we can get a couple more uh, over the course of this podcast. Um, great. So it sounds like you, you know, had pretty creative parents. Is that kind of what inspired you to go into doing improv and comedy? Well, yes. I think so. I think it's it would be hard to say that it didn't have an effect. The truth is that I spent... A lot more time growing up with my mom uh, than I did in the city with my dad, although I moved back to the city when I was 17 to go to college. Um, 
So yes, basically started homeschooling when I was like 10 years old. uh, And then I started taking early sort of college classes when I was like 14. Uh, My brother and I both did that, which was sort of a common thing for homeschoolers to do. It was like there's a local SUNY Ulster. It was like used to be a community college and then became part of the SUNY system. And I got tossed into that to take college classes. Uh, I was actually a philosophy uh, major. If you can think of a more annoying thing than a 14-year-old philosophy major, (laughs) uh, best of luck. Uh, And I want to be a writer because I was the head writer for this uh, live-action role-playing or like LARP summer camp for uh, a long time, uh, you know, a couple years. And before that, I was also working as a story writer with, uh, uh, well, my friend was sort of the head story writer there. Um, So I thought writing was way to go. I went to school for screenwriting. Cool. uh, Where did you go to college? uh, SUNY Ulster and then uh, School of Visual Arts in New York. Cool. I went to UCB for the first time when I was a student at SVA. I went into the Chelsea and went down to that basement and I was like, this is magic. I remember seeing Joe Wangert shoot Anthony King with a crossbow. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I remember seeing Omelette Vision with Michael Delaney and Billy Merritt and being like, this is magic. I don't know how two people are capable of doing this. Do you remember what even brought you? Was it like a friend that took you or you're like, I think this would be fun? My friend, a uh, friend, Alon Backrack from uh, LARP Camp brought mm. me to my first UCB show. Wow. We stopped at a bodega on the way and got Rice Krispie treats and uh, like Coco Alato, like coconut uh, popsicles. <laughs> and it was the best night of my life. I couldn't believe it. And, and I didn't take classes there for another five years. Another five years? What happened in those five years? What was keeping you from taking classes? I was, well, I was... Uh, just strikingly poor. Um, just, <laughs> Striking. <laughs> just you'd be am- the kind of the kind of uh, broke where you know it was like I would roll up to like a bakery and be like, "My man, when are you throwing those donuts out?" Because your boy would be happy to throw them out for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, but I think that's that's part of it but the real truth was I have my friends who talk about going to their first improv show and being like that's me on that stage and the truth was I was too blown away by what I saw it just didn't occur to me of like that's where I belong because there wasn't like a poster saying like take classes at the theater so I was just like look at these perfect angels doing this amazing <laughs> comedy I'm so glad they're here anyway back to film school um, so what what changed five years later where did you have your first job or what were you doing that set you up to be able to take class so I got out of film school and I was writing a bunch of scripts and writing all the time and again thought thought of myself primarily as a writer and um, I was bartending because uh, that was a that's a great you know my last name is Mulligan and that's a survival <laughs> job that's just you know I think I walked into the Blarney Stone I was like again I was like 21 walked in and they were like do you have any prior experience and I was like yes and they were like okay what's what's your name Brennan Mulligan great you're hired get behind the bar <laughs> um and while I was bartending that was enough income that I could start and basically I was part of an indie sketch group uh, called Pink Axe and my friend Jess Rianero who was like a uh, was doing sketch and taking those classes was like UCB is the place to be Del Close Marathon we're going this is awesome if we're serious about this you got to take classes and uh, I was like okay that sounds fun and I'm bartending so I have for the first time in my life a little bit of like disposable income I will take a improv class and I took it and it was with Mike Still and ah. Uh, it was a ball. It was so fun. I never anticipated that I would be on a team or be a teacher. I went, you know, this is like the sort of funny thing people say on Facebook where they're like, you know, Abby and Alana were never on a team, right? When they're talking about like using the community as a resource and the fact that you sure. can put up shows here. That was my intention. My intention was very much like I was in a hole writing screenplays. Nobody knew who I was or cared. I was PAing sometime for Law and Order, and you know, no one's even really knew my name, let alone like read the script. I promise I'm good, you know. Sure. So what happened between your first class with Mike Still and then you know getting on your first house team in New York? Um, in 401, 301 and 401, I met Joey Price, who's a teacher and performer in New York, and the four other members of my first indie team: Warren, Dan Lopretto, Michael Green, Radio Callahan, Liz Noth, and Basically, you know, that 301 thing where Joey invited me to 
this practice. He was like, we're gonna do a practice group. You know, maybe have a team, maybe do shows. And after, I remember being outside after the class and someone was like, is it bad that we're not, like, we're not inviting everyone from class, which I think is a very universal. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, it's good. It's good. Yeah. It's like, it's like a very universal thing where people don't want, you know, don't want anyone to feel left out or anything like that. And I remember everyone sort of went around and weighed in on it. And Joey was basically like, Joey was like, hey, you know, like, we're not, we're not saying anything bad about the other people in class. We just can't have a 16 person yeah. team. <laughs> Um, you guys are the people that I vibe with. It's not a reflection or judgment on the character of the other people that I did an email. It's just, I like you guys and that shouldn't be wrong. Uh, and then it like, everyone looked to me cause I hadn't spoken yet. And my, my response was honestly, I'm just so happy to be included. That <laughs> I, like I, I'm just glad I was on the email list. Whatever just, you guys want to do. Whatever fine. you guys want to do. Anything you guys for real, anything you guys want to do. I'm so happy to yeah. be included. <laughs> oh, I remember I forgot part of the story, which is that I missed, I wasn't, he put the thing together the week I, I was absent from class. I couldn't make it to class that week. And Michael Green was like, over pizza, was like, hey, you should email Joey. I'm sure he, he would have put you, but you didn't give your email, but I'm sure he would have emailed you. So I remember writing this email that I think I still have to Joey Price <laughs> that was like, dear Joey Price, uh, I've heard that you're putting together a practice group. Uh, please do not feel uh, uh, bad if you did not intend to put me in the practice group. Uh, I feel absolutely no pressure at all. Uh, however, I would be honored uh, to perform improv with you, should you wish, but I understand if you don't. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Sincerely, best regards. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, and he and I got an email back that was very. He was like, joke. "Yeah, dude, come on, come hang." I mean, that's pretty much verbatim. Yeah, he was like, "Yeah, for sure, dude, it's chill." <laughs> it's a very cool. He's very funny, very sweet San Francisco guy. I think it literally was like, "Dude, hell excited." I'll see you on Thursday. Um, and then doing those indie shows, going to four hundred one, you know, and then I got accepted into advanced study. Um, we went up at Indy Cage Match and started winning Indy Cage Match. And then I, it was like auditions and it was the first one I was eligible for. And I went and auditioned and it was the first time Lloyd was being created. The the Beast had just opened up in New York and uh, 32 new spots were opening up, right? So there was a huge influx. You know, there's I think there's a thing on both coasts where it's like there are people that are doing really good work in the community and they're like, oh, like this person's like, there's like sort of indie sort of all-stars, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but a bunch of spots opening on Herald because New York Herald spots open up all the time because of LA and people moving out here. Mm -hmm. And then 32 new Lloyd spots meant that a straight up load of randos got on. And I was extremely... A rando. I, you know, I had been taking classes for a year. Joey Price got on in the same audition and very much was not, you know, it's, it's one of these funny things where I think sometimes you'll hear people talk about UCB and they're like, it's political. It's who you know. Yeah. So, you, know you, you know, man. You, you know, know, it's like, you, who's a McManus? Who's, who's, who's Grease and Pops? Who's fucking, you know, it's all bullshit. Yeah. Uh, and straight up, it was like, for real, the first time people knew who I was, it was through a photo on the like, ca this cast page. Guy, he's a fucking rando. He's a fucking rando. Who is this fucking guy? Uh, but that was, it was not, that was, I was not the only one. It was like a bunch of people yeah. that got, that were, that I think were in a similar situation of uh, very fresh faced. And it, it was wild. I mean, I, that, I auditioned because of a very strong feeling of why the fuck not, right? I'm just like, right, hey, there's, like, I'm, I will take as many tries at the brass ring as the powers that be want to give me, but I didn't have any expectation. I was like, sure. you know, I was like, oh, I'll go and do that. But really, I'm here to to make friends and meet people that I can show my scripts to and maybe form a community with. Yeah, cool. So, so you were on Lloyd for six months, and then you got moved up to Harold. So that um, doesn't really exist in LA in the sense that like you get automatically moved up. So what what's that structure like in New York? So so yeah, it's not automatic in New York either. It is, um, uh, yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not automatic in New York either. But there's a, um, or I guess I mean you you don't have to re audition. You don't have to re audition. You can be. I think now there's a similar thing with Lloyd that exists in Mess Hall out here, where you know that your teams are getting broken up at the end of a certain point. I think you can actually re audition for Lloyd or stay on. So I don't think it's the Mess Hall thing of everybody's off, all new crew on. Sure. 
Uh, but with Harold's, it's a very similar thing of getting promoted. And there are a lot of mid-season promotions as well. I mean, the, the real different thing about UCB in New York is, again, the turnover rate, which is just dramatically different. Um, you know, in a, in a given season between between like the, the closed auditions in the fall and the open auditions in the spring, you know, it's like over those six months, it's like usual, I think, for like between two to five people to get bumped up to Harold just because people are leaving or stepping down or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you got bumped up mid-season? I actually got bumped up for uh, during an audition. During so they, an audition. Yeah, auditions. Okay. Some people got cut. Some people already left. And normally what it is is, is that first, th- you know, the three months before, after auditions, people will get bumped up to replace. But as you get closer to auditions, they'll leave openings open knowing that auditions are around the corner. Sure. You know, so you'll have some, I think there was some one Herald team before a audition, like the week before, that had like four people. <laughs> it's like, They're like, we're just hanging in there. Just fucking dropping like flies. Jesus. Um, so did you feel um, as, that the stakes were higher the diff- in performing on Harold versus Lloyd? Was there a shift in your mindset? Um uh, I think this this is gonna this is gonna be like alienating to say, but no, I did not feel that no, the stakes. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's a funny thing because I know that some people very much are aware of, um, of like gotta prove myself. This is the show. Who's watching? Who's in the audience? I have to do correct improv. Am I doing this too much? Am I doing that too much? And I think this comes simultaneously for me from a selfish place of just like, whatever, dude, I'm having a ball. I totally agree. That's how I am. I'm like, we just need to have fun. We just need to have fun out <laughs> here, gang. Yeah. Um, the biggest the biggest thing about going to Chelsea was just the improvement in the quality of the stage. I mean, Chelsea's gone now, but those doors. Oh, I can't tell you how much fun <laughs> those doors are. Give me them doors. And the curtain and the level of the stage and the fact that you can, because it's actually similar from the doors and curtain to here at sunset, but um, you can run back to the tech booth real quick. So you can dip back and jump on the God mic. You can dip back and like, cue up music in the middle of an improv oh, show. Oh, wow. It is a hoot. So That's great. It was, it's all, and I think too that there's a degree of, uh, the odds are so spectacular. I felt I felt a sense of duty and responsibility to my teammates to be a good teammate, to practice hard, and to be you know a good improviser for them. But on a personal level, it's just like, oh, I like I'm extremely living on borrowed time. You know, like like if I only am on Harold for six months, that's six more months of Harold than most people ever get a chance to. Like, sure. The only feeling of this should be gratitude, totally, rather than concern or worry. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. Um, so let's let's fast forward to moving to LA. Um, you were on Harold for four years in New York, and then what was the catalyst for you coming to Los Angeles, and how was that transition for you? Uh, so the catalyst for coming to Los Angeles was um, I. Uh, my home of seven years, my apartment where I live with my brother and two extremely close friends, uh, two of my best friends, uh, that apartment uh, uh, sort of blew up. People moved to different places. It was like, oh, okay, like some people are moving in with girlfriends. Some people are moving closer to work, you know, sort of sayonara to the early 20s bachelor pad kind sure. of life. <laughs> um, uh, and then the, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, so that happened. I got dumped by... Uh, a girlfriend that I had just moved in with. Oh so no! We were in the same apartment for three weeks, and she was like, "This is not working." Oh wow! After three weeks? Uh, yeah, I. That's not that long. I don't think I'm that bad of a roommate. But yeah. <laughs> man, that was quick. It was uh, honestly, I will say this also. This was a this was a a sort of New York uh, uh, move in. Mm. It was sort of this thing of like we've been dating for six months. We should and then you're oh, like, well, that's not that's also not that long. Either. Not that <laughs> long. Move in. It's like we've been dating for six months. Ugh, that's pretty recent the rent would be $300 a piece well I'll pack my bags this sounds wonderful I think we can make it uh I think we can make this work um uh she's a a completely lovely person and uh I I think she you know uh, there's zero hard feelings there and that three months uh, or that that three weeks of $300 rent was was beautiful it was beautiful still living off those savings uh exactly um so I got dumped Friends moved to the winds, and I won uh, a bunch of money on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Cool. <laughs> Briefly talk about that. 
Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, I won a bunch of money. Who wants to be a millionaire? Uh, uh, it was a, it was a hefty chunk of change. Um, uh, not the full million. Not n- it. It was a life changing amount of money for a very poor person. Sure. That's the amount of money I'll say that I is it all gone. Uh, uh, yes, extremely all gone. Okay. Uh, pay, paying down debt. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do with money when you get money as a, a broke fella. Sure. Um, so, but the money is also partially gone because it completely subsidized my move out to Los Angeles. That's great. Which is extraordinarily expensive. Um, uh, if you're, especially if you're like taking anything with you. Um, and I was basically like, well, I could stay in New York as this, uh, broken hearted vagrant with, uh, some pocket change, or I could move to LA now. Uh, and this is, you know, before I am in a committed relationship again or get a job out here or start a family, you know, any of those things where you're like, that's, that stuff is not in the very extremely near future, but it's on the horizon. Yeah. And if I don't move to LA now, there will be a lot more heartbreaking sure. things to moving there later. Yeah. So that's great. So you come out here and were you already teaching in New York or did you? I've been teaching for about okay. two years in New York and I was teaching, I think I taught like half the intensives. One, There was like one year where I taught like 20 or 25 intensives in a year, which for the record, an intensive in New York is a one week class where wow. you teach eight. So it's basically like a, you know, 25 hours a week of teaching. Wow. Uh, and that was like my job. That's pretty much what I was doing. Uh, and I moved out here. Uh, emailed Johnny Meeks, the academic director out here in LA, and he was extremely kind and put me on the sub list. And I was a very reliable sub for those first couple months. Uh, I was on my email like a hawk. <laughs> uh, and then I got some classes. I got a 101 and 301. And um, it's been teaching is the one thing that it is impossible for me to overstate how much I enjoy it. And how much I look forward to teaching classes. And I know that there's, it's very in vogue, especially as people get more successful in like the larger entertainment industry for people to be like, improv. <laughs> like, oh, what are you doing? An improv show? As though they weren't like sweating it out, worrying about LeBron's <laughs> two years ago, you know? Uh, so it's very false when I hear people make fun of improv a lot of the time. But also, uh, I some people are like, oh, like you're teaching. Is that what you want to be doing? I have a full-time job now and I'm extremely tired at the end of every day and I'm excited to come to the school and teach every time. Totally. I, I feel to. the same way. I love, I love teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually coached people that are in your class and they're like, wow, Brennan, he, he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it so much. <laughs> and I was like, yes, <laughs> he does. Cause I remember having you as a, as a sub and then as, as a coach a few times and I was like, the, just like the energy you bring is really magnetic and it's great. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Um, so, so a little bit, I want to hear about your full-time job and does your improv training and background influence your work at College Humor? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, completely. So I, I've worked as a writer for a long time. I went to school for writing. I write a uh, graphic novel and web comic. Um, but when I'm in the room doing sketch, it's all improv. And I think that um, sketch writing is something that is extremely um, – let me see how I phrase this. The skills I developed as an improviser, especially with the UCB style of being very focused on game and how to make things work, is the – tool I use absolutely the most when I'm writing sketch and, and performing at College Humor. Obviously with sketch, there's production, there's cameras, there's uh, you're writing the moves ahead of time. But the truth is that like when you're sitting there drafting a sketch, you're just making moves off the top of your head like you are when you're doing improv. And now they're just moves that you have the ability to go back in and edit and refine to get notes on and make them a little bit sharper. Um, I think that a strength that improvisers have in the world of sketch is an intuitive understanding of what needs to be done with words and what needs to be done with performance. And there are, there's a big, a lot of, one of the things I point out the most when I'm teaching is I, ha- I have a little personal crusade against uh, cleverness mm-hmm. and like wit. I'll be like, if you guys 
came to this improv class to be Oscar Wilde and Dorothy Parker and to be dropping <laughs> bon mots out there on stage, you were going to be in for a rude awakening <laughs> when you get out there. Because what I love about improv is it really doesn't reward cleverness mm -hmm. or wit or sharpness. It rewards strong choices and full listening and honest reaction. Right. Uh, and there's so many times in classes where someone will get a like get an enormous laugh. And after the thing, I'll say, does anybody anybody, you know, was the funniest part? This per this line this person said. Right. Is that like a cleverly crafted joke or was that just a completely honest moment? And again, nine times out of ten, it's not some, you know, little witty repartee. It's somebody who just dredged something out of their soul. Sure. Sure. I know. I totally I always say I'm like, listen, react, commit. That's it. That's it. You just do that. You'll be fine. And I think, too, I remember there was a class the other day. I had this great student who was playing like a shitty, she was like playing a shitty yoga teacher. And there was another student. Who, it was a great scene. They killed it. And there was another student who was playing um, someone who was coming to the yoga class in an emotional breakdown. It's <laughs> like, I'm fucked up. I don't. And the yoga teacher was clearly not a spiritually enlightened person. They were like kind of a shithead. Yeah. Uh, and so the yoga teacher was like, okay, breathe in, breathe out. And the person started crying again and the yoga teacher just went, well, this is a first for me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, that's the funniest fucking thing you could yeah. have said. It's so funny. But so the trick for me when I'm writing sketch is to remember lines like that. Because mm -hmm. when you're sitting in a computer, you forget lines like sure. this is a first for me, which on the page don't look like a joke. It yeah. doesn't look like, a, but you're like, oh, that's going to be light speed funny because it's speaking to a deeper truth about the character. Sure. Um, not to disparage jokes. Jokes are super important, but there are a lot of things that don't have the classic structure of a joke that work really well in a comedic scene. Yeah. Great. Um, I, I had you as a coach a few years ago for a couple sessions and um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your coaching and your teaching philosophy and, you know, what you think is helpful, like what exercises you love, you constantly return to, or just kind of like how you approach the whole classroom environment. Hell yeah. Uh, this is what I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> um, uh, when you say my coaching or teaching philosophy, do you mean my philosophy of improv that I impart in while I'm coaching or teaching? Or do you mean actually what I think makes a good coach or improv teacher? I guess uh, what you think makes you a good coach or improv teacher, and yeah, I, I guess like both. Both, cool. Uh, I'll, so, so yeah. In terms of what makes a good improv teacher, I, this is my hot take. Ready? Yes. Here's my hot take. It's it's boiling lava hot. Uh oh. To all other coaches and teachers out there, all my my esteemed colleagues, in my humble opinion, you gotta be side coaching. You got you. I agree. You gotta be side coaching. There is. To, to me, and, and I feel so strongly about this because I've been doing this for many years now, not as long as some, but I've been teaching for the past, what, five, four or five years, coached long before that. I, and also, by the way, not to toot my own horn, I've been teaching for way longer. A lot of our improv coaches in the community are people that are good performers and they get asked to coach. I've been teaching since I was a like, child myself. I was a camp counselor for many years, teaching improv workshops to kids. I've been just doing this for a long time. And in terms of teaching strategies, I think we all know the post-show noting ritual yeah. or the post-scene. People are standing on the back line, and you're looking at two people who you're like, great, let's talk about that scene you know it was dog shit. You are going glassy-eyed while I look at you. You're falling into an endless pit of self-loathing <laughs> while I critique and put this stuff and that stuff and talk about the scene. And I just do not, I, you know, this is a hot take. I do not think that people absorb meaningful lessons from notes after the fact. I agree. I totally agree. I'm all about side coaching. I think it's so effective. I remember because I remember when the first time someone started side coaching me because here's the thing. It's not that the note in the middle of the scene is going to be different than the note after the scene. The difference is when you say pause, here's what you're uh, here's where you're misstepping. Try it again this way. Suddenly you are forcing me to think a way I don't think because now I'm putting it in the scene. And if it's working, 
you better believe I will never forget that note. Sure. Because I felt it work. If you're giving me a note afterwards, I already didn't get my dopamine rush because I didn't do a good scene. So I'm mad that I didn't get my high from doing a funny improv scene. And, uh, uh, on top of it, now I'm getting this note, which, of course, noting is always in the abstract. Even if you're making it as concrete as possible, it's about a scene we're never going to do again. Sure. Versus getting someone to do – it's like – I don't know. It would be like taking someone through physical therapy and watching them fuck up their muscles and afterwards be like, did you notice how you were fucking up your muscles <laughs> in that physical therapy? Try not to yeah. do that next time. Totally. I totally agree. I'm also a big proponent of uh, having people redo initiations or like redo the same thing. I'm like – Work, work the muscle of seeing what it feels to get your idea out right. Dude, I'll make people redo an initiation three, four yeah, times. Totally. Yeah, totally. I'll be like, no one's going home until you get this right. <laughs> Eat this entire chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, full trunch bowl every yeah. time. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I completely agree. And there's a... Um, uh, I'll even stop scenes to side. I believe in side coaching so much. I'll stop scenes when they're going great to turn to the class and be like, do you see how well this scene is going? Why do we think that is? Do we notice what they're doing right here? And I'll talk to the performers that are killing it because I think sometimes there are people that are very that are either just doing a very good scene because mm -hmm. they're they're they you know they got it right that time, or even people that are like good in a class and just very naturally gifted who might not know what their yeah, gift yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, I think there's a lot of value in stopping and being like. I know that you know this is working. Do you know why it's working? Do you know sure. why we want to keep making these correct choices? So did you have a coach or a teacher that side coached you where you realized like, oh, this is what I love? Like who imparted that on you? I remember Ben Rameka in New York. Side, he was working with our team. Um, was this, I think this was women and men. Um, and I'd been on Herald Night for a little while and we just hadn't been side coached in a second. Because I think there's a, a problem that, like, sometimes Herald teams, people are a little bit, look, it is hard to coach a good team. If you're coaching a team and people are constantly denying each other and fucking up their object work, it's, there's what's easier than you just going like, hey, you dropped the cup. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but if people are, like, funny, you have to, I think, really put yourself on your A game to be like, cool, that was good. Do we want to be good or do we want to be like amazing? Mm -hmm. And how do we get there? Um, so it was a Herald team. We I hadn't been side coached. I don't know how long. And uh, Ben Ramekas stopped this scene and he's like, "I want you to do it again. Say this instead." And I'm like, "What the fuck? Is he <laughs> giving me a fucking line reading in my? How <laughs> dare you, sir?" And um, did it again. Explosion of laughter. Uh, and I was like, "This feels immediately a hundred times better." And taught the lesson to myself, right? Like, uh, Amy, you know, here's the thing about the side coaching conversation. Uh, I don't feel too bad about saying this on the podcast because you know who agrees with me? Amy fucking Poehler, oh. who said, who said, you don't learn anything from a bad scene. Famous Amy Poehler, one of the greatest, in addition to just an incredible comedian, one of the best teachers and improv coaches of all time. And she's right. You don't learn anything from a bad scene. Being in that moment and being in a scene that was struggling and then being adjusted and getting a laugh I absorbed the note, meaning that even while I was doing the scene and it was working, I was going like, oh, this is working and this is how it feels when it's working. And I remember how it felt when it was bad. And now I have something in my central nervous mm -hmm. system that's going to flip on and make me not be that way I was totally. before. Rather than giving this abstract intellectual conversation that I'm going to have to, on my own free time, try to transmute into a kinetic body lesson. Totally. Uh, if all those jamble of words made any sense. No, um, absolutely. Absolutely. So do you uh, coach Harold teams now? I don't coach regularly anymore. You don't coach because you, you're working full time. I'm working full time. So, so I, make, I make time for classes. If I have a, a lighter week at work, I'll sub some classes. Sure. Um, but sadly, I hardly coach anymore. With one exception, which is an indie team called Moon Boy. Uh, that's a, just a rock star indie team that I coach. A bunch of extremely funny uh, improvisers. Shout out to Moonboy. Book, book Moonboy on your shows. Oh, Moonboy. Great. Um, well, I was going to ask, like, are there any um, things that you see like happening in the improv community overall that kind of are pet peeves or you're like, oh, like, I don't know what's going on, what we're doing, things that you have been noticing or anything? Yeah. 
Yeah, I got shit to say. <laughs> uh, like, what type of improv? You're like, oh, I hate. Like this, this is happening, and I don't know why. And I wish this would be happening instead. Um, I think the demographics of who does improv have changed so substantially that all of our curriculum is dynamite. I'm mm-hmm. a company man through and through. I believe in our curriculum. I think UCB makes you funnier. You come and take wow, classes, you will, what a get, sell. you will get funnier, right? We're not one of these fucking places that's like, oh, just do the work and the comedy will happen. Yeah. Fuck that. Baseline reality, unusual thing. You want to get funny? Let's break it down. Here's how it happens, right? There is a, it is a craft. Uh, so I believe in the curriculum through and through. I think that there are elements of the curriculum that are emphasized over other elements of the curriculum to the detriment of the current demographics of our student body. Mm, interesting. And uh, th- and that's not uh, that's not a critique of the school at all. That's just saying that times change sure. and. Uh, teaching improv is extremely isolated. Like me and the other teachers, other than little three-minute things about classes, don't talk about what we're all doing. Johnny Meeks audited my class the other week. It's basically just Johnny. Johnny's got this whole task to himself of like seeing how everybody's teaching this really young, vibrant art form, right? So I think that it's something that it would be good to see the school respond to and to see the community respond to over time. Here's the here's the the takeaway that I see. Mm-hmm. Huge amounts of work are put into emphasizing yes and emphasizing uh like like emphasizing like don't try to be funny don't try to be funny don't try to be funny don't be don't be too wacky don't go too crazy don't uh don't be a steamroller don't you know don't uh, let's all settle down gang yes and let's all <laughs> yeah. play nice that's a holdover from in my opinion you know what the fuck do i know uh, in my opinion, that's a holdover from making sure that like drunk Chicago lunatics, your John Belushi's and, you know, like that these people could play nice people that are just like raw comedic power. Like, how do we get these funny lunatics to calm down and agree to a base reality? I think because improv is a an art form that by definition rewards teamwork, listening, and collaboration, that it has seen a huge influx of people that are uh, extremely community-minded, people that are politically left, uh, people that uh, are, for lack of a better word, like uh, extremely giving, charitable people. The average 101 class that I teach, nobody needs to – I explain yes and because it's the literal core of the 101 curriculum. You know how many of my students in an average 101 have a hard time grasping yes and? Goose egg. Zero. <laughs> they get it intuitively because the people that show up to an improv class in 2018 are fucking – you know, in L.A. especially, are like woke, socialist, happy, hippie, fun-loving people that want to build community. And it wouldn't occur to them to deny someone's reality. They yeah. get that intuitively. But we have a whole group of people that were saying stuff like, don't be funny, don't be funny. That note built into our curriculum is for Kyle, who from who's <laughs> like Kyle? Fucking for you, Kyle. No offense, to anyone named Kyle. This is I'm talking about a platonic Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> who's like Kyle? Who's gonna like jump out and like quote Family Guy in yeah. the middle of a set? <laughs> Take Kyle aside and explain to Kyle that he should stop being funny. Don't tell your other 15 people that they should not try to be funny because a lot of these people are coming in from like an advertising background or a teaching background or some other thing, or they're taking an improv class for like public speaking. These people don't need to be told to stunt their weird instinct. Sure. Interesting. Cool. I like that. I think a lot of people, and I think it's especially hard because I'll say to a class especially, and I think it's, you know, to get into like the politics of it, there's an interesting thing like across gender with it. There's an interesting thing across different uh, backgrounds and different ideas of who feels privileged to speak and steamroll in a scene versus who doesn't. And if I have a class with like majority women in it and I'm 
hammering, don't steamroll, don't try to be funny. And they're hearing this and going like, got it. Okay, I should quiet down and I should pipe down and I should not be. That's the wrong lesson for that group of people. Totally. Yeah, I'm on an all women's group. And whenever we get together, we're like, why are all of our sets insane? And we're like, yeah, because we're not being forced to voice of reason, nutcase dudes all the time. So yeah. like when we're all allowed to be the unusual, we're like, woohoo. Fuck yeah. I mean, that's the thing too is I, when I'm in classes or less so in classes because the classes are extremely on the rails in terms of the curriculum you're teaching, but especially when I'm coaching, it's a similar thing where it's like, hey, you're allowed to be weird. Like th- this, this caution against attempting to be funny is built into the curriculum born of a time. And born of a situation, right? If you look at history, most of what we see causing a lot of harm, other than just human wickedness, is ideology. <laughs> I like that human wickedness is the root of all of the harm. Yeah, like, wicked. I mean, it's true, but like, I've just never like, you know what? Darn wickedness. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm from the past, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, uh, or assholes if you prefer. Uh, but is ideologies outliving their welcome? Right. Like you have something where like, you know, in colonial America, you have this strong thing of like Calvinism. Right. Which is like we're predestined the industrious Puritan work ethic or whatever, which like that ideology maybe makes sense if you're, you know, building a home out of logs. We get to 2018 where we have enough food to feed everybody on the planet. We have enough material wealth to give everybody a home. We have enough automation in, if not right now, in the near future that nobody should have to work of, you know, a a full job. But this strain of Calvinism in our culture makes us go, if you're not working, you're trash. And that's an ideology born of a time that is overstaying its welcome. Mm -hmm. And you're like, maybe that made sense at one point because ideologies are not descriptions of a static universe. Ideologies are descriptions of the needs of the time and place that produced those ideologies. And as they move on, sometimes some ideologies are also just fucking whack the second they're thought of. But, you know, that idea of like, oh, even an ideology that was good at a certain point can outlive its welcome and no longer describe the material conditions of the civilization it finds itself in. And that's why I think that uh, you should not worry about being funny. (laughs) Great. So just be be funny. If you yeah, want to be, be funny. Go yeah, be funny. Unless you're fucking Kyle. Unless you're fucking Kyle. Kyle, sit down. Sit down. Um, so what do you what do you want to see then come out of UCB or comedy in general in the next five years? Uh wow. What do I want to see come out of UCB or comedy in the next five years? Or for you, what what do you want to be doing? Kind of like looking ahead, what what are you excited about? Uh, uh, I'm excited about, again, so working at College Humor, I have a lot of fun projects coming out with them. There's a lot of big stuff in the works over there, which I'm super psyched about. Um, and I think UCB is, is such a worthwhile community and school. And I think that we can see that there are a lot of issues still to work out as there are going to be in any institution. But I also don't know any institution like UCB that uh, makes progress on those issues such a high priority. Um, And I know this is a funny thing to say, but I do like, I remember being in classes where in terms of like the demographic was like now seven years ago where the demographics were so much different than they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think about all the progress that the, the school community has made and, uh, and should continue to make, you know, which is that article that came out about uh, coaches for teams, which is awesome and so helpful and something that's really helpful for the demographics of people along class lines, right? Cause some people, you know, that 60 bucks a, a month or whatever for dues is, a, is a hurdle. Uh, so I see UCB as a place that is dedicated to constant improvement. Um, I see it as a place that has one of the few curriculums that, you know, there's a lot of bullshit acting classes in the world and the classes we teach here are not among them. We make, we do the thing we say we know how to do, uh, which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, I think the trick for UCB or what I want to see coming out of UCB in the future is just, uh, an increase in the diversity of voices that are featured on our stage and featured in our digital work, um, uh, creating again a, a breeding ground for voices that we haven't heard before that have been historically overlooked, uh, and I think that I also would love to see like, um, 
you know, our stuff, it's hard because there's like everywhere you go in the industry, there's UCB people. So it's like, it's, it's like more UCB people working, dude, they're working. Yeah. <laughs> they're out there. Right. Um, but I think what's so cool and what I guess I would communicate if I could is that the ideology and curriculum of UCB is designed in such a way to enhance whatever your voice already is. And I think sometimes I hear people talk about game, which is our signature philosophy here, and be like, oh, game, I'm not really good with game, or I'm not, that's a style, like you can tell a UCB scene. I don't, I think game in its purest form means that uh, the UCB's voice should be all-encompassing. It should be as diverse as possible, partially because you're seeing uh, game as just the nature of what's funny, right? Game is baseline reality plus unusual thing, repeatable mm -hmm. pattern of behavior based on the first unusual thing in the scene, which means that, you know, if something is unusual, it means that it's standing out against something else. So that's baseline, right? So anytime you're talking to somebody, it's like, cool, that, that rubric or that ideology is infinitely adaptable. So whatever you want to say or whatever your experience that you're speaking to is, you can use this curriculum as a bullhorn to magnify whatever your comedic vision is. That's like a little speech I sometimes give to like advanced students is I'll talk about it and say, you know, you guys may struggle with it, but you'll master game one day. And when you do, you'll realize that you have this tool to be thrown into any scene with any subject matter of any kind and know how to spot baseline unusual and therefore know how to progress the scene in a direction of getting laughs and being funny. And when you do that, suddenly you have this mastery of this strange alchemy, and you'll go, fuck, I can make anything funny. What do I want to talk about? What do I want to say? Mm -hmm. And that can be daunting, because you're not, you're, you're not waiting for a good idea. You're not waiting for inspiration to strike. You can take any subject and find the comedic angle on it. And that means that suddenly you're back to what we teach on day one of 101, which is honesty. Who are you? What's your honest take on the world? What do you care about? And so I would love to see UCB in the next five years in the community uh, project those voices, amplify them, and watch as people use comedy as a lens and a meta language to say the things they've always wanted to say louder and in a way that they cannot be ignored. Cool. Awesome. I love that. Um, I heard that you have, uh, Cody's clapping. You couldn't hear it cause he did it oh, silently, but I, he did a little clap. He did a little clap. So I want that on the record. Oh, good. He did a little clap. Um, I heard that you have two fake teeth and you've published two books. One for each tooth. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there, um, for the listeners at home. Just, sure. Just so that they could know. Uh, I have two fake teeth. Um, I, uh, so I existed for many long years, uh, without health insurance of any kind. Um, and, uh, a tooth in my head became highly mobile, which is dental speak for wobbly as fuck. <laughs> um, it got real wobbly and I went to the NYU school of dentistry where dentistry is half off. You go check them out if you're in New York. Those dental mm. schools are, uh, they're, they're great. Um, and they were like, oh, Mr. Mulligan. And then you scraped around up in this tooth. It was my very front tooth, my number eight incisor, which is one of the two kind of front teeth in the top of my mouth. And um, they were like, Mr. Mulligan, you have a potentially fatal abscess in the roof of your mouth. And I was like, I beg your pardon? And they were like, yeah, this, you, there's a buildup of bacteria here that if it spreads into your blood vessels could go into your brain and kill you. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I was like, rad. Uh, like, sick. Thanks, sick. Dr. Kyle. Fucking tight, Dr. Kyle. Yes. Um... And uh, I did what any self-respecting 24-year-old would do, and I called my mommy, and she, I was like, Mom, I don't know what to, what's going on. Because basically I said, well, how can we treat it? And they were like, yes, we can treat it. It'll cost $3,600. Yeah. Um, we can see you in mid-September. This is like early July. So I'm like, that's two, that's two months. You said potentially fatal, right? And she was like, yeah, um, you know, if you start getting sleepy at a weird time, call 911. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And I was like, nah, that seems bad. Uh, can anyone see me sooner? She was like, yeah, like a regular practicing dentist. It'll be probably about 7500 out of pocket. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, that's an amount of money that I've never had. Yeah. I've ne I'm not even, not even close. Um, and I called my mom, and my mom was like, friend of the family, just got back from Costa Rica. There's a place there called Denevac. 
They do really incredible work. Dental tour, medical tourism is like a huge, yeah, a huge industry. Uh, she's like, so a, you know, you should consider this place Denivac. And um, forty-eight hours later, I was in Costa Rica. Um, the twenty-four-hour rush passport service, the um, uh, the plane, the hotel, the rental car. Um, the actual surgery and the rainforest zipline excursion all told, I think I ran me up like 2,200 bucks. That's insane. Hell yeah. And amazing. <laughs> it was great. It was the best. It was wild. Costa Rica is beautiful. It's lovely there. Uh, uh, I spoke just enough Spanish to make an asshole out of myself. Um, if you ever want to try to get money out of a bank when you are high on Vicodin and bleeding out of your mouth uh, in a language you don't speak, I recommend trying that because that was a real, that was an adventure. That was very fun. That sounds like a real Kyle move. It was a real Kyle move. Well, it was, it was very funny because I can speak conversational Spanish, but at the bank, they don't speak conversational anything. <laughs> you know, like, because like a bank, like, like you go to a bank in America and it's the same story. They're like, Good afternoon, sir. May I assist yeah. you with your request? But all the, so all the hyper formal words in Spanish that you would never have cause sure. to use, and you're like, you know, I'm just sitting there being like, Necesito dinero del Costa Rica. <laughs> uh, wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow! Well, I think that's very resourceful that you uh, <laughs> that you did all that. And then, um, what about what about the two books? Briefly, what what are those? Uh, I write a webcomic called uh, Strong Female Protagonist, which is a superhero, slice-of-life, social justice uh, webcomic. Uh, Molly Ostertag illustrates it. Molly also did, uh, she wrote and illustrated The Witch Boy for Scholastic. She's uh, a genius. Right. Um, uh, it's a project that we've been doing forever. We started when, like, about, again, seven years ago. So I started at the same year I like was starting UCB stuff and it's been running alongside my kind of improv and comedy career sort of the whole time. Uh, it's not necessarily comedic work. It's more just like a sort of webcomic graphic novel about ethics and philosophy and, you know, cool. through the lens of superheroes. Putting that 14 year old philosophy degree to good work. There you go. We had a whole chapter about deontology versus utilitarianism and uh, people got real mad, gang. Uh Oh, oh boy. Uh Oh, <laughs> Well, Brennan, it's been it's been a real treat uh, talking to you. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram mm. at Brennan Lee Mulligan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N-L-E-E-M-U-L-L-I-G-A-N. You can find me at, uh, on Twitter at, at Brennan L-M. Um, and uh, uh, you can find my webcomic, Strong Female Protagonist, uh, dot com. Uh, and I'm a College Humor cast member, so you can uh, check out my videos uh, on YouTube or go to collegehumor.com. Great. And if people want to see you perform live, uh, where can we do that? Uh, you can come. Uh, I, I uh, sit in a bunch or uh, with Teacher's Lounge, which is every Tuesday at sunset. Uh, I don't know when this will be airing. Uh, oh, five weeks. Five weeks. So you can't see the shows I'm doing this weekend unless you got a time machine. And if you have a time <laughs> machine, why are you using it to see improv shows? You fucking lunatic. Go kill Hitler. Yeah. What's the fucking holdup? Yeah, I would say if you have a time machine, please don't use it to go see Brennan's comedy shows. Please, God, I will be fucking furious if you're like, dude, great show. You, you as that wizard kangaroo, that was fucking sick. Anyway, do you want to go to the future? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Great. Well, you guys, that was a long form conversation. Tune in to the next episode when Brennan will be your host. Thank you for listening. Woo! Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the UCB Long Form Conversations podcast on the UCB Comedy Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and review at iTunes.com slash UCB Comedy. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the comedians talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of UCB Theater or Training Center. Find cutting-edge comedy videos on YouTube and Vimeo at UCB Comedy. Find our live shows at UCBTheater.com and connect with us on social media at UCB Comedy. 